0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the product-led podcast. Uh, Today, I have a really fun guest. His name is Andrew Davies and he is the CMO at Paddle. And you're in for a treat because not only does he bring a ton of experience around this particular topic that we're going to be going through today, but his accent is just amazing. So you're going to have an amazing time listening to this one either way. And the topic for today is really just on some of the reasoning behind why Paddle decided to spend over $200 million acquiring ProfitWell and really some of the product-led kind of reasons behind that, uh, which we're going to get into, which is going to be really, really interesting. So Andrew, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Wes. I feel I'm on, on the spotlight now knowing uh, my accent is under pressure. Yes.
0: <laughs> awesome. Can you just quickly tell us a little bit of your background so people can understand just where you're coming from?
1: Yeah, certainly. So... Um, I was a company founder, CMO of a SaaS business and co-founder of a SaaS business that was a strong purist ABM play. We were whale hunting, no PLG at all. And we sold that business two and a bit years ago into a business that, again, was an enterprise ABM outbound type process. And I ran global marketing for them. That became Optimizely as part of a roll-up. So I ran global marketing there. Came and joined Paddle in January of this year, and it's been a ride since. And we've got a much more blended model, a hybrid model between PLG and and Outbound ABM. We've had an acquisition recently. And so, yeah, it's been a ride over the last few years, learning two really different motions and how they can work together and what's different about them. Um, But that's me. I'm I'm CMO at Paddle.com.
0: Awesome. And can you give us like a quick 30 second overview of like what paddle is, what it does, how it's maybe different than, let's say something very that a lot of people are familiar with, like Stripe or something like that.
1: All of that in 30 seconds works. Yeah, 30. Go. fundamentally you 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 mentioned stripe you know we're a big customer of stripe it's part of our infrastructure i think what people you know what we find in the market is there are really two different approaches there's a build it yourself maintain it yourself scale it yourself approach which is where you buy stripe and then you do you know maybe other payment acceptance methods you have subscription management tools fraud tools tax calculators etc or use paddle and it's your one tool It's a slightly higher fee, but it's one single partner, and then you use them for your entire growth journey. And it means you can focus on the customer and focus on the product you're building. So we call it the complete payments infrastructure for SaaS. And yeah, that's really what we do.
0: Awesome. So take all those uh, hairy problems, especially around taxes and stuff, and <laughs> make sure people don't have to solve them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was told by a customer of ours a couple of days ago that second-time founders choose Paddle, and I love that description. You know, once you kind of yeah. experience some of that pain, then second time round, it's much easier to make
0: that decision. Yeah, I've yet to meet a founder where it's like, I actually enjoy this stuff. I would, <laughs> you know, instead of like growth, I just want to focus on my taxes and figuring out, you know, what's the right attribution here and there. <laughs> no one ever. Cool. Yeah, no one ever. So the topic for today is like that 200 million acquisition and how it really was a really cool product led play. Could you just share a little bit more around the why? Because we hear all the headlines and stuff like that it sounds great, but I want to just hear it from your perspective like what were some of the main kind of like reasons behind this acquisition play?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, for those who don't know, Paddle acquired ProfitWell. I think we was announced it in May, 2022. So several months back now. Most of your audience will have heard of ProfitWell. They might well have come across Patrick Campbell and his many different uh, talks and keynotes. He's a fantastic speaker, super intelligent guy. I love working with him and knew him from you know. I bumped to you know, come across his path years ago when I was building my SaaS business. So the why here is really interesting. I think we've had massive ambitions at paddle to grow a really industry defining company and you know when you think about that some of it is what you can build yourself and then some of it is who are there out on the market that we could partner with? And, you know, to use that often phrase, you know, one plus one really does equal three. And the kind of the paths of Christian and Patrick, the two CEOs, you know, they crossed years ago at conferences, on podcasts, and philosophically, they think very similarly. So both of us are trying to not just give you better tools to run your company, but remove the problem from you and do it for you. And that's something that's really interesting. So it's giving you the actual end result, the outcome, Mm -hmm. rather than giving you better tools and insights or some data. We can come back to that. So there's a real strong kind of product vision, a philosophical alignment there. ProfitWell have built the number one SaaS metrics product on the market. You know, almost 30,000 companies that use it. And that's, you know, fantastically valuable. It's a unique insight into the industry that we loved. And then they had two paid products that are completely complementary with no overlap, an automatic churn reduction product called Retain and Price Intelligently, which many people know them for, which is a pricing product. So yeah, we bought them for that Awareness in the market, that massive metrics data set that we want to respect and build out in its own right and keep independent. And that's part of an ecosystem play of us being a lot more open and integrating into the wider ecosystem that we hadn't done previously. And then these two paid products. And fundamentally, the why is that we believe that together we serve the end customer better as a combined
0: organization. I like that's a kind of uniting mission as well and like done for you versus like you know a lot of saas products it is quite heavy lifting i always go back to this example is the former cpo at grow.com and he was talking about this analogy of you know you go to a restaurant and you kind of expect in a lot of restaurants to just kind of okay get shown to your seats and then okay you pick whatever you want and then boom you get your food and that's not how a lot of SaaS companies work. <laughs> and they might expect the restaurant experience, but then they go to the restaurants and then the host takes them to the kitchen <laughs> and kind of hands them all the tools and, hey, make whatever you want. It's up to you. And they're like, oh, okay. Do you even have a recipe? <laughs> it's just like, you know, they're totally a different experience. So I definitely resonate with why people are going towards that new direction of done-for for you because it also enables you to attract a larger total addressable market for sure. Because yeah, only so many people are cooks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love the analogy.
0: And when it comes to, I guess, like that overall product vision, how did you see that playing out when you kind of combined the companies? Because it was like, okay, separate products, there was no kind of overlap on that end. Was there anything where you felt like, okay, together this could just solve some potentially new bigger problems for your specific users and customers?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're about to announce the full integration of metrics into the Paddle product. Metrics wasn't something we were very good at. The reporting, uh, we knew we had lots of customer feedback saying that the Paddle reporting system wasn't very good. And so making sure that the number one industry tool is baked into our product is really important. And also continuing to assure the industry that we're going to integrate with all those other billing platforms, including competitors, and make sure they have the best product too, is really fundamental to our success, our customer success, that we continue doing that. So, you know, yes, free metrics product. Yes, metrics fully integrated into Paddle. Retain will also probably integrate to Paddle as well as part of our same product, although we'll still offer it externally too. I think there's a couple of things that, are really valuable here. Firstly, you know, once we have that fuller set of data from metrics, we're able to give better reporting, we're able to drive better end outcome through the Paddle billing engine. So if you do choose to then use Paddle as your billing engine too, then we can drive way more. There's a whole bunch of metrics we could walk through there, but fundamentally it comes down to growth. Um, Mm -hmm. And we can drive that for you if you choose to move your book of business over to us. But also I think there's a couple of other things that are Less commercial here. You know, one thing I love about profit well is the way that Patrick and the team built a fantastic slate of shows: pricing, page tear down, and protect the hustle, and rev ops and hops, and many more. And that's something that we're doubling down on now as a combined business. And that's part of providing value to the customer too. It might be ahead of a transaction, and ahead of a purchase, ahead of a customer <laughs> relationship. But we want we want to do our bit of helping educate the entire SaaS community about how they can grow better, faster, cheaper through that kind of education as well.
0: Why do you care so much about that? Because I get it and I love it. Like whenever I kind of interact with some of those shows and like pricing page teardowns and all those things too that I've actually gone through and watched. But why do you, like as a CMO, does that matter so much? Like why do you need to have that versus maybe just pushing people more towards upgrading earlier kind of in the experience?
1: Yeah. So I know you and other researchers, uh, voices in the PLG space are talking about how people are giving more and more away for free. We're seeing more and more products, you know, actually give a lot more of the experience before they've even asked for that email address or that that Mm -hmm. first conversion point. And I think this is all part of a broader trend where, you know, there's more people creating and building The quality of the products we're using is going up. The competition in most segments is going up. And therefore, it's kind of a a natural outcome of that, that people in order to stand out are giving away more and more value for free. And I certainly believe as a marketer that it makes all of the following conversations much, much easier if we've already given something of value. And so for me, it's of fundamental importance because every part of our relationship process from that point on becomes easier when someone has, you know, improved their business, met someone new as a result of the community and the content that we're distributing. So I believe everything becomes easier and you know lower friction, including, you know, using paddle as a as a software provider later.
0: Totally. How has your perspective on growth changed from those ABM whale hunting days to now? And what are some of those biggest like differences? Because what you just described is like absolutely agree and that, that makes a ton of sense, but <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like natural <laughs> a lot of yep. big kind of whether it's belief changes but also just like how do you enable your team differently how do you think about that so I'm curious like what were those big changes on your end
1: so one of the things I've reflected on is that in an ABM context you spent all of your time trying to get in the room with the mm-hmm. customer and in in PLG context, you spend all of your time trying to get out of the room. You're trying to make this as frictionless as possible. So, you know, in my prior world, the highest point of friction was getting in the door. You're constantly trying to get through that door in order to have the conversation with probably a group of people. And that's also part of that friction, right? Driving that community and committee decision within any, any one of your accounts. And now all of the investment in a PLG world has to go into not being in those rooms, but actually never having to go into those rooms at all because you're providing documentation, developer experience, and guides, and onboarding, and cues, and all the rest of it. So I think that's super interesting. I think, you know, you do have to intimately know the account in a different way when it comes to ABM. You've got to do a lot more research up front. You've got to know those personalities and their personas and you you can justify more cost because of the outcome of those deals. And so I think, you know, your investment is more in headcount versus in a PLG world, whether it's where, where it's in program spend, you know. But I think, the interesting thing I've found is the similarities. Yes, there are loads of differences, but you still got to understand the customer. You've got to set up metrics that genuinely measure reality. You've got to test and learn and build confidence. You know, the tighter your target market, the better you go. You know, you've got to give away still as much value as possible, but it might be a different format. So, yeah, I think there are probably more similarities than differences, but it's a very different mode of being.
0: Totally. Yeah, I always come back to that in writing another book and it's all about product-led strategy and the main kind of thing I'm finding is like, you know what, like the fundamentals of business have not changed <laughs> like, as much as we want to say like, okay, product growth has introduced yeah. this completely revolutionary new way of doing business. It's like, yes and no, <laughs> like there is the way you acquire customers. Is it like fundamentally different from a marketing channel perspective and like all the different tools you're going to use, SEO and all that stuff? It's like, no. But as far as maybe where your call to action is and what you lead people towards, that might change. And then I look at it from monetization as kind of the next big step there. It's like for a lot of sales tech companies, it's like that's the next thing. Like as soon as you acquire someone, it's like get them to the demo, get them to the next step on that end. But the one big kind of shift I see in this capacity of moving to product led is really it's like acquire and then it's about engage. It's like how do we get you to like activate? How do we get you to value? How do we get you to do that part? And then we can monetize you and I think I don't know, curious to hear your perspective on this too, but the most successful product led companies, they do the absolute best job at engaging people first and then kind of delaying that monetization, but at the ends they can definitely monetize people a lot easier and faster because they played the long game in that way
1: yeah 100% and profitwell had a really interesting kind of belief behind how they built and why they built so metrics was free because they when they initially built you know profitwell metrics they thought they were going to charge for it and it was going to be a killer multi billion dollar company because they charged for it and then they did a bunch of competitive analysis and a bunch of pricing analysis and found that actually people weren't very willing to pay and also it was increasingly competitive and so they made the really kind of you know counterintuitive decision at that point in time to give it away for free but you know, what was sitting behind that was a belief that if you have a continuum of data to insights to outcomes, that it's way, way better to charge for outcomes and give away the data and the insights for free. And you know, really, that's what sat behind their business. So giving away the data as for free, giving away some insight for free, but then only starting to monetize the outcome, which for them was reduced churn, you know, a retention product. And I think you know, you've got to think about giving value away for free across multiple dimensions. It's not just software. You know, we're in our London office, we've got a big London office with loads of space and we open invite startups in the area to come and use that space because we want to be helpful. You know, one of the tenants behind the ProfitWell support structure was that whenever you want to talk to one of the founders or leaders or, you know, experts in that business, regardless of whether they could sell to you or not, they'd want to have that conversation to give value for free. You know, so it comes in many different forms as well as just the media and just the software.
0: Totally. Now, as a marketing leader, like what were some of those biggest changes that you've kind of identified? You talked a little bit about like the I like the concept of like ABM is like get in the room, product led is get out of the room. I like that concept. But as far as how you lead your team and what you get them to focus on, was there any other like big changes on that end from moving from more of a sales led to product led leader? yeah i mean you know, i'm
1: definitely not there i'm on that journey you know, yeah we're still balancing sales as well as product led so it's a very much hybrid you know, fundamentally my belief is as any leader but as a marketing leader my job is to teach people the rules of the game so they get to play it themselves so yeah. Product led and sales led, there's just slightly different rules of the game. There's different cost of acquisition, there's different tools and tactic mixes, but that philosophy is exactly the same. And frankly, you know, I'm going through that process of discovering some of those rules of the game and learning from people like yourself and other people out in the industry who who have been in this game and in this PLG space longer than I have, so that my team can understand what our goals should look like, what our Customer position cost should look like what good should look like, so they can go and play it themselves. And I think that piece again is is similar between the two methods. Awesome.
0: And so you talked a little bit about before this call too, like content and community, and just like why it's so important. That's one of the the big things kind of stood out to you in ProfitWell as well. Like they do an amazing job with the pricing page teardowns downs and all that stuff to really engage community and create that experience. What is the overall importance of that in your mind? You talked about engagement, but was there anything else that you think is like really out important for people to think about if they are running their own SaaS company, why they should potentially consider something like that?
1: Yeah, so... I think one thing that ProfitWell did really well, and I think it's important to pull out here, is it's not just content. You know, every marketing team is chucking out content to feed the marketing automation machine, right? We've got a hundred different eBooks, we've got a hundred different webinars, you know, most of them pretty suboptimal. One of the beliefs that sat behind ProfitWell, which I've seen in a couple of places now, and I really, you know, I, I love to see played out in real life, is the belief that an episodic format where you're delivering a series over time is something that it really accretes in value. Whereas when you're dropping an ebook, then you see this spike of attention and activity. And then you spend the next three months with your SDRs desperately on the phone trying to call people and convert them from that point of engagement Mm -hmm. through to something else. And what we're trying to do and what that kind of profit-well approach was, was to stack that over time and build and build and build. And I think that's really interesting. And it's something that, Few marketing teams are doing. Podcasting is probably the main medium that people are starting to do this in rather mm-hmm. than video or other formats. But I think that's super interesting as something that sits behind it. And then the second thing would be genuinely making it data-driven. It's all very well for you know people to start a, a video series where they're interviewing people or starting a video series where they're talking about customer challenges. One of the unique things that sits behind what we're trying to do is making sure that our data set what we've learned about customers is actually what
0: is informing that content. And I think that gives it a really relevant point of view. Totally. And how do you decide what is something to give away for free versus something that you should charge for?
1: So I think it's really important as marketers that we genuinely understand the fundamental business economics. So let's yeah. use you know, the profit, one, and paddle circumstance here. You know, the lifetime value of paddle is significant. We are something that is embedded in someone. People don't like replacing their billing stack. We do see people come to us as they're scaling because they face those challenges of internationalization that uh, you mentioned at the beginning, tax calculations, etc. But it's pretty sticky because it's something that's fundamental and core to the business. And, you know, we want to be the last ever billing stack replacement that any company ever does. And so with that knowledge, suddenly, you know, that does become a fundamental endpoint of where we want to bring people to, because we believe it gives them the most value. And therefore, there absolutely is a kind of a gradation of other things we've got to make a decision on before that, of whether they should be completely free or whether they should in some way be subsidized. And so, you know, fundamentally, I think there's a few things here. The first thing is what's the timeframe of the business? you know, venture-backed versus bootstrapping? Are you looking at a couple of years? Are you looking at, you know, seven, eight, nine, 10-year horizon? Or you don't have any horizon at all because some of this stuff just accretes more over time. I believe that if ProfitWell had had a venture-backed situation where they had a more short-termist mindset for growth, they wouldn't have been afforded the time and ability to go and build the number one metrics product on the market for free. It would have been, that was a really strong-willed, principled decision by Patrick and Faku and Peter and the other team there. And so, I think that time frame thing affects a lot of these decisions.
0: What do you think helps companies create that time frame? Because, like there's like the startup kind of vibe, which is like, let's just launch this and figure it out and like throw the long term out the window usually, not always. And then there's, yeah, like other companies like probably on an example where it's like,, okay, we're going to play like the really long term play here, make this free product absolutely the best thing in the market, which is very bold because you probably could charge for it but also there's a lot of different value that you could derive from that too
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and you know i think it is easier if you're bootstrapped because then you're making that decision yourself and we have seen you know a bunch of vcs being willing to play that long game with unmonetized products and you know Sometimes, you know, Silicon Valley in America from the European context gets criticised for being willing to play that long game. But yeah, I think really it it does come down to alignment internally. Like, does your board agree that this is the strategy? And does that give you multiple, not multiple quarters, but multiple years to execute on it? And one thing that's really exciting to me, Wes, is seeing more and more founders want to bootstrap, want to go longer before they're raising. And yep. then being able to control that philosophy themselves before being pressured into into really pushing those quarterly numbers. And I, th- I genuinely believe that that usually gives a better outcome for the customer they're serving because they're obsessing about every single one of those new users.
0: Totally. What are some of like the big benefits that you're willing to share so far from this acquisition that you kind of went into? Like any acquisition is a bit of like okay, you have your ideas of like what you expect. You've done your due diligence. And you have like your expected plays of like, how do you get that one plus one equals three combo uh, we're all trying to get. And so when you think about that, and what actually happens since May, what are some of those big things where you're like, wow, like this actually really, really worked maybe even better than expected? And what are some of those things where you're like, bummer?
1: <laughs> so I think, you know, fundamental to this is you've got a group of people who joined a business that they never applied to work at. Yeah, you know that's what happens in any acquisition, right? There's a bunch of people, 85 people on acquisition who applied to work at ProfitWell and now no longer work at ProfitWell. And so, honestly, you know, we can talk about a few other ones, but probably the one that has the most challenges and the most unexpected surprises is around the people. You know, on the challenges, you're bringing together two teams who have pretty similar worldviews about a whole bunch of different things, but you know, entrenched in a different context, in a different company, in a different market. Clearly will go about things in a different way. And so there's a whole bunch of vocabulary and process and how we do things that you've got to start ironing out there. And you know, simple things like in a bootstrapped environment, everyone's got six job descriptions. And suddenly you're now in a larger company, you've got to say, Well, I kind of need you to do one job really, really well. Which of these six do you want to pick? You know, there's some interesting conversations that happen there. On the flip side, you know, in terms of some of the in terms of some of the kind of the wins. On that side, that have been unexpected. I keep coming across, you know, Profitwell team members that I've, you know, obviously not worked with prior who are just killing it, who are passionate, they're, they're deeply empathetic, they're extremely experienced in the bit of the business that they're working in. And when you're doing an acquisition, you're looking at a sheet of numbers and a DD pack. Yeah. And so getting to know the people behind that pack for me has been, you know, the real win here. But yeah, those, the, the people side of it is probably the bit that's most fraught with, uh, with interesting conversations.
0: Totally. And when you think about the culture too, like how are you approaching that? Because I know there's like a couple of different mindsets like, okay, it's like a merger and like, okay, we're going to like combine and pick the best things of like this culture and, you know, get rid of some others, whatever. And then there's like, okay, we acquired you for a reason. Like, let's just keep it as is. (laughs) And we won't mess it up. So curious how you think about just that overall cultural perspective too.
1: So this was a really interesting one because we were buying a business that was on its front foot. They weren't looking to be sold. They have a massive, you know, view, ambition in the market view of where they're going to go. And so, you know, that creates problems in that there are real strong opinions from multiple different perspectives here. I've been involved in acquisitions in the past where really it's a tuck-in and you're buying a company that really is kind of struggling to raise capital or you're struggling to see an exit. And it's much easier then to just bring them into the mothership, if you like. That's definitely not the situation we have here. And so, you know, I think the most important conversation is, to get everyone to the point in their journey of learning about the combined companies where you end up walking out of your room and then walking back into the new room together as one team and trying to work on what that new future looks like. Because in the in the first couple of months, there's that shorthand we use, which is, oh, I'm from Paddle and you're from ProfitWell. And that's really helpful for like a matter of weeks when you're trying to learn who people are and what they do. And then it becomes a bit destructive because suddenly now there's a divide between you. And then it's important to make sure there's a mechanism for walking everyone out of the room and back in and saying, okay, now with this combined business, we're going after these killer targets, this customer value. What's the best way of operating together to, based on our you know, historic values and things we've learned? But what's the best way of operating genuinely together
0: to meet that goal? Okay. Uh, so I guess to recap that for the culture, is it just not changing it too much and just finding like what is the best way to, to keep it like as far as like even like core values and like changing that side of things or is there not much change you're thinking in the, the interim for right now?
1: No, I think we do need to, we need to reclarify things. We need to reclarify things for both companies. It's yeah. not about profit well taking on Paddle's culture. It's not Paddle taking on well's culture. We've yeah. got to go through an exercise of coming up with what is this combined group totally. of people brought together. So I think it is change on both
0: sides. Awesome. And... As CMO Paddle, how are you thinking about utilizing Profitwell's free products? Since they got, like you mentioned, the number one analytics product for free, it's an amazing thing to potentially utilize. What are some of the thoughts you have about how you can better utilize this to not just hit your goals, but also uh, maybe even get more and more kind of awareness for this product?
1: Yeah. So firstly we need to keep investing in metrics itself so that it keeps growing you know it'd be mm-hmm. crazy for us to you know just assume that that's just going to sit there. We've got to invest in new billing integrations with other companies and making sure that it's delivering a great experience there. So we've got to spin up a better resource team to keep that going. And so there's suddenly new mm-hmm. functions that have to spin up when we're thinking about this. Secondly, I'm really interested in how we you know on an aggregate level that's non-invasive to any of those companies that, that are in that base. How we help everybody learn by benchmarking on what good looks like across the range of metrics we're tracking. We already do a bit of that within the product, but I think we can go way deeper on that because, you know, in the cut and thrust of building profit well, and the same in Paddle, like neither of us have done a particularly great job of interrogating our own data to provide yeah. value. And I think that's something that's, again, another thing we've got to build out on top that will really help us. So both of those two things, uh, I think, are new in the organization, in the marketing organization that we've got to work on. I think there are a few other things here, you know ProfitWell has been built, you know, by an outbound BDR model. In the same way that Paddle has got that too, and so although they have the the product-led growth motion that's working Mm -hmm. for their paid products, it's often BDRs reaching out into those accounts to offer them something that is an upsell. And now we've got to unify that process across both companies because we're both operating in different stages of sales stages, different handoffs with sales, different types of targets, compensation, etc. There's a whole piece of work to work through there. But fundamentally, I want to make sure we are genuinely going after both of these goals. It's really hard to be juggling a how do we enable self-service frictionless with often smaller businesses, but not exclusively, at the same time as stretching for larger and larger businesses that need a whole bunch more infrastructure, documentation, procurement, management, sales, enablement, et cetera, behind them. But that's the challenge we've got to reach to if we're going to achieve our goals. So there's a real diversion of focus that we've got to build out in the team with some specialists on both
0: ends. Totally. Yeah, I agree with you on the data side of things too. I know when I was writing the first book, Productive Growth, I was like, there's this reference from ProfitWell here. This, I think it was the most referenced company. <laughs> love <laughs> it, like, love it. Because there is really hard to get data on a lot of this stuff. So no, I absolutely love that part. And now I want to try something new for this. And you're going to teach us a class as quick as you can. But the topic of your class is going to be How would you teach a class on how to acquire a product-led company? What are the things to consider? What would you recommend doing? What would you recommend not doing? And what are some of those things that you think people should know about as like the top of your list as you kind of like reflect on your past? How long did the acquisition take?
1: It was a pretty quick process, probably four months end-to-end.
0: Okay, cool. That's awesome. I thought it was gonna be a lot longer, but that's great.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Super fast. We drove it very fast and a fundraiser to you know getting the money to do it as well. So it was a pretty uh, pretty busy start to the year. Totally.
0: Cool. So let's hear your class. If you are going to teach someone how to acquire a product-led business, how would you do it?
1: Sure. So I mean, in any M&A process, you know, one of the first things you're doing is understanding why you're trying to build this. So what is the kind of the M&A vision here? Is it about just you know, revenue arbitrage of taking your business and being able to put your multiple onto theirs? Is it about trying to get to a certain point of growth to be able to exit? Is it about you know, product capabilities, et cetera? So having a really clear thesis behind why you're doing this is important. Talent acquisition is another really key one. Secondly, you know, it's about shortlists. Who are the players in the market that you think are going to be you know, aligned to that value you're trying to create? But then we get into the process of deciding, prioritizing. And um, I think one thing that's really important here is coming back to the customer, coming back to is there genuinely either an alignment of ideal customer profile between the two businesses, or we're doing this specifically because it's additive to our market, it's additive to who we currently serve. And so in our example, you know there is a subset of the subscription software industry that we can serve based on our acceptable use policy, our risk tolerance, and a few other different things. ProfitWell has a larger market, and we were really comfortable that, A, there are a lot of Paddle's ideal customers within their you know prospect base and their customer base, but also that we wanted to widen who we could eventually sell to, who we're marketing to, et cetera. So that deep understanding of the customer. And that's something that I think there is the rigor being built in businesses, in marketing teams now at scale-ups, i have yet to see the same rigor within the MA process. It is too easy to see a PowerPoint slide that says They've got a billion-dollar market size. We've got a billion-dollar market size. You know, there's probably a bit of dupe. Let's make it 1.5. But deeply understanding those customers is really, really key. And I think that's a fundamental part of it. And then, you know, the bit that then comes after that is the synergy model. Like, how are we justifying what we're willing to pay for this? And that's usually a bit of chicken and egg. You do it a bit top-down, a bit bottom-up. You know, what can you afford? What are they asking for? And then what does the the numbers on the ground really show? But you've got to go into it with a clear understanding of how you're getting to that value. You know, in some environments, PE, it's cutting costs. Uh, In some environments, it's value creation through cross-sell and upsell. It might be a whole range of other things or a blend of things. But, you know, understanding that synergy model and then driving your plan to that is really important. So those would be the three or four things I'd start out thinking about.
0: I love it. And is there anything different where like, if let's say you were to do that same model, like I know a lot of those steps too. Like if you're going to do an acquisition for a sales led company, you would still want to find like the synergy, you would still want to find like, okay, it's the same customer. But is there anything like specifically unique you'd find where it's like, you know, for a product like company, you'd really want to like, watch out for this or look for this specific area, like active users or something as an example, where it's like, that's a bit more unique that they probably have a good free model or something like that. Yeah. Okay.
1: Fantastic call out. So yes, the difference there, I think, there's a couple of things. Firstly, you know, usually there is that much wider top of funnel, and so examining that is really, really important. Like genuinely in a sales-led business, having a really wide wide top of funnel often just isn't important. It's not worth even investigating because what you want to investigate is the lower funnel stages—people in contracting, people in genuine sales opportunity. So, firstly, yes, completely agree. More investigation of you know how large is this audience? How are they coming to you? What's that genuine size when you dedupe it across channels? And then how engaged are they? Yes, if they're free products, exactly the same coming down to their you know, activity levels. How recently have they logged in? How many people from that business have logged in? You know, those things that usually don't show up in a, in a sales-led kind of m and because again, you're just really talking about customers and people mm-hmm. are very the funnel. I think the other thing that is really interesting here is that in a sales-led world, normally there are a smaller number of companies that you're working with, a smaller number of accounts. And therefore, there'll normally be a reference system where you'll ask for, we want to speak to five, and there'll be an independent third party that will go and speak to those five and report back to either the financiers, the acquiring company about, are they happy? Are they not happy? What do they think about the business, et cetera, et cetera. I think in a product-led world, There's the opportunity when both parties agree, and we did a little bit of this, to do much wider surveying and sentiment kind of testing Mm -hmm. of of going to the wider base. And actually, you're not really disturbing a commercial relationship, which is often the sensitivity there. So you can get some real interesting feedback from that wider engaged audience. And the other bit of that is you can be part of the audience in a product-led world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why wouldn't you, if you're acquiring a product-led company, actually go and adopt and be part of it and be part of the audience? Now, that's something you can't do if you're going to go and, you know, buy
0: a sales-led business. Totally. I love those parts, sense. What do you say? It's less risky in some ways in a product-led business acquisition versus a more of a sales-led one? Just by the nature of there is probably going to be a lot more customers in the sense of like, let's take a million-dollar business for this part just to make the math easy. One, the sales of business has like, let's say 20 customers or something like that. The product that yeah. one has a thousand. And it's yeah. just like, okay, if you lose 10, okay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Versus 10 on the other, it's like, oh my goodness, we're having like, a, we lost half the business kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a
1: really interesting point. I've never thought of it that way. I think you're probably right. I think there, you know, there's more data to observe. You know, certainly mm-hmm. in early stage, early stage sales-led businesses, it's very, very common to see you know one or two data points that are put together as three or four, and suddenly it's a gospel truth. Whereas in a product-led world, yes, there's normally more data, more users, more interactions that you can build that story off. But I think all of these acquisitions are risky.
0: Totally. Now, when you do your next acquisition, what's the one or two things you're going to do differently next time? (laughs)
1: <laughs> one of the things I don't think I'll ever get the opportunity to do again is to build a documentary about the uh, the acquisition <laughs> process. So that's something I, I I think we did this time that was new for me this time that we'd never done before. I've been involved yeah. in you know one sell side and five buy side acquisitions before this. And I don't think I'll ever get that opportunity again. So that was pretty cool. I think the speed that we did this at was really critical. And it's one thing that I'd want to keep learning and keep doing the you know, opportunity later is if you drive a really fast timeline, chaos becomes shorter. And that's really helpful for everybody that's involved. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think that's something that we you know, learned from prior in this last one, but I'd want to continue learning. And although you experience incredible short-term pain to get it done, it just makes everybody's job easier the second this deal is signed. And that's something I'd really want to extend for before. I think the other thing that I don't want to you know say that the way we did it was really good, but there was certainly a bunch of learning that went into it. One of the things that we invested in that I'd encourage anyone doing this process to do the same is we got the entire team in the room from both companies within two weeks of the acquisition. So we'd already planned a summit for Paddle, and we just made sure, in case it was going to happen, that we had an extra 100 beds in the venue we were ready for. And so we planned this full company summit, and then we flew all of the ProfitWell team in as well. In fact, you know they were up getting passports, you know, two days before they were flying to get to get over because it was so last minute. But the vibrancy and the energy of suddenly having both of these teams in the room 320 people, I think, in the room for the first time ever, and you know, post-COVID, where we'd not even all been in the room together at Paddle, yeah. it was really palpable. And that was such a cool thing to see. Oh,
0: that's awesome. Amazing. So I know people can find out more about you at what you're doing at Paddle.com, uh, as well as ProfitWell now. <laughs> but uh, if people want to learn more about you or reach out, where's the best place for them to reach out? Yeah, more than happy to connect on LinkedIn or on Twitter. You know, reasonably active on both of them. Love to hear from people.
1: Love to jump in and see how I can help. And then also, you know, in the real world as well, I'm at Sasta and Sastoc over the next few months and at most SAS conferences and really
0: happy to spend some time face-to-face over coffee too. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Andrew. Real pleasure, Wes. Thanks so much for the time. All right. Thank you for listening to the product-led podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens, so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, We will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews, and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.